With that, Michael, come on up. I usually sit when I'm teaching because this is actually what I've been doing for like 12 years or so is teaching all day, like 30 or 40 hours a week. So, you know, fivefold ministry, one of them's teacher. And so that's what I'm called to do. And if you go back to like, you know, um, Travis mentioned Jewish tradition. If you go back in like some of the Jewish writings, like the Talmud, do you know how the Jews define a true teacher? A true teacher is someone who knows the scriptures and the voice of God, right? And so that's really one of our goals with the teaching ministry is to be led by the voice of the Lord in what we teach and how we teach and what our perspective is so that really what we're after is like a prophetic heart of teaching. Now, Travis mentioned honey, so I'll just mention um, some revelation the Lord gave me. This was about five years ago. The Lord brought me into a vision where I saw swarms of bees, and this was before I had honeybees. And he started to speak to me about Genesis 28 beehive angels. And what he told me is just like in the springtime, there's uh, swarms of bees looking for a place. And if you've seen the swarms, it's like a giant ball of bees. It's like otherworldly. It looks like a UFO or something, but it's natural. And this giant ball of honeybees is going around looking for a place where they can set up shop and build their hive and gather pollen and start to make the honey. So what the Lord told me is there are groups of hundreds of angels looking for a place to set up shop. And he told me, here's what these angels are looking for. A place where the saints, that's you, are like flowers with their faces turned towards the sun. That means they're focused on the Lord. And he also said that these angels are looking for a place where people were practicing the bee attitudes. Okay, good. Some of you got the pun. The Lord likes to speak in puns. And so he was talking to me about how there's these beehive angels, and once they find a people whose focus is turned towards, their Lord, towards the Lord, who are practicing the bee attitude, so they're hungry for the Lord, and they're demonstrating love towards each other and all of this, then those angels are going to say, okay, we found a place we can rest and set up shop and start to make the honey, which is that heavier glory. Now, the same week I had this revelation, if you've been to Morningstar Fort Mill, you know, it's a pretty big building. Same week I had this revelation, they had a bee swarm actually fly into the building. And so, and then it was like that same week I was at a gas station. I, I'm not sure if you have QT around here. We have QT. I went to QT and as I'm pumping the gas, a bee swarm flies in and all the bees are swirling around me as I'm trying to pump the gas. I'm like, okay, Lord, I get the message. And I'm sharing that this morning because angelic ministry is real and powerful, but they are looking to partner with us. You know, if you read Song of Solomon, it says, 
Why do you gaze on me as on the dance of Mahanaim? Mahanaim. Mahanaim in scripture, Mahanaim means two camps. Two camps. If you go back to the book of Genesis, when Jacob starts to leave Laban's house with his family, he's setting up camp. He has his campfires going. And a little piece down the road, the angels of God set up camp. And they have their own tents and their own fires. So that place is called Mahanaim because there was two camps. There was the people and there was the angels. So when Song of Solomon talks about the dance of Mahanaim, learning to work with angelic ministry is like a dance. If you are learning to dance, you're going to step on some toes as you're learning. And the toe stepping goes both ways. Angels actually aren't used to working with us. So they can do things that are offensive and things that are weird. And likewise, we're not used to working with angels, so we can overstep sometimes. But generally, the angels that are assigned to your life and your church and your family align with your calling, and they are uh, called to action when you step out in faith to fulfill your calling. Here's a good example. There's worshiping angels. There's throne room angels. There's angels who are instruments. There's angels who carry instruments. There's angels who release that spirit of prophetic worship. See, to activate them, you don't, even, you don't have to You don't even have to see them. All you have to do is start to step out and worship to do something new. There's healing angels. There's resurrection angels. Whenever you stretch out your hands and start to pray in Jesus' name, those healing angels get called to attention. They don't even need you to talk to them. They're actually excited and waiting for you to spring to action because angelic ministry swirls around Faithful saints, angelic ministry. These are ministering spirits sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. You know, Psalm 104, and this is repeated in Hebrews, tells us he makes his his messengers winds, his servants flames of fire. Now, it gets real interesting with the spiritual dynamics. Have you ever felt like a wind come into the room? Now, we talked yesterday, that can be the presence of the the Father coming in. That can be the very presence of the Holy Spirit. Other times, it's angelic ministry. Sometimes when you're praying for people and you feel a warmth or a like a, a, a good kind of heaviness come on you. Sometimes that's the presence of the Lord. Sometimes you don't see it, but there's a big angel standing right next to you about to cast out a spirit of cancer. And so I'm telling you, there is more angelic ministry that the Lord wants to bring swirling around this place and swirling around your life and swirling around your home. The number one thing that brings angelic ministry is a clear understanding and application of the apostolic gospel. 
And so I'm going to kind of shift gears. In the worship, the focus was the name of Jesus. I want to start, you know, the topic today is end times, understanding the end times. And so the key to understanding the Lord's plan is Jesus. So I, um, I'm going to kind of shift gears, and I want to break this down. Let me open up notes. Message is not about angels today. <laughs> that was just like <laughs> bonus. <laughs> um, okay. Full scope of Christ's ministry. All right, just for those taking notes, I'm going to try to do this real quick. <laughs> There's only nine things. <laughs> okay, pre-incarnate Christ. And then we have the incarnation. That's when the word becomes flesh. And then we have... Uh, uh, life and ministry. Big big thing there is his teachings and his works. And then we have death and burial. Burial. Resurrection. Ascension. Enthronement. Sits on a throne. Got an extra O in there. Enthronement. Return. Restoration. Of all things. That's actually going to be one of our main focuses today. Traditionally, most churches are focused exclusively on this. And that's good. Because the heart of the apostolic gospel is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He is the sacrificial lamb. He took all of our sins upon himself. And as we talked about last night, that is a really big deal. Because when he took all of our sins on himself and he's put to death, he put the curse of sin and death to death so he purchased the right to restore everything that the curse of sin and death has touched. Everything. So that's the crux of the gospel. But there's a lot of deeper mysteries here and here that I think we sometimes neglect to teach or emphasize. And as we get into the end times more, it's going to become increasingly important to understand all of it. So I'm not really going to focus so much on this tonight, but I will say, Jesus, if you read John 1 carefully, everything was created by him and through him. He's, he's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all things, the judge of all things. If you look at the apostolic message, Anytime the apostles get filled with glory, they're not just focused on Christ's death and resurrection. You can look at like Stephen. When Stephen's face starts to shine with the Shekinah glory of God like an angel, 
it's because he saw a heavenly portal open and he saw Jesus at his throne. Paul tells us when he talks about setting our hearts focus to fix our eyes, fix our uh, hearts and our minds on things above in Colossians 3. There's something about focusing on the ascended and enthroned Christ that is super powerful in transforming our heart and our mind and our perspective. Here's why it's super powerful. From his place on a throne of glory, Jesus sees all and restores all. He's at a place of limitless power. He's not the baby in a manger at this point. He is seated on a throne of glory and when we start to pray and declare things, we're actually speaking from a place, let me mess with some of your theology, we're actually enthroned with him. Enthroned with him? <laughs> let me just throw this out there. We talked last night about how when you're baptized, when you go under the water, you're identified with his death and burial. Your old you dies. When you come up out of the water, you're identified with his resurrection. You get a new life with God that's restored, with a restored heart and mind. That's good. But here's the crazy thing. We're not just considered included with his death and resurrection. We're going to ascend with him. We're going to be enthroned with him. We're even going to return with him. And we're going to restore all things with him. Now, because I'm, some of you, I'm tweaking your theology, I'm, I will sh demonstrate this with the words of Jesus just for a second. So, Revelation 3. What? I did. Last night, I dropped my Bible, and the binding is broken, and it flipped it, so Revelation was before Genesis in my Bible. <laughs> Well, in, in Hebrew theology, everything comes full circle, so. All right. Um, okay, Revelation 3. And you know, this is the word delayed to see in church. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The, anytime you eat with someone... It's to build friendship and fellowship. It's to get to know them better. And so the Lord, is, he wants us to invite him in so we can build intimacy. Out of that intimacy comes spiritual authority. Who do I trust with the keys to my car? The keys to my house. The keys to my office. My passwords to my email. People I have relationship with. And so it's true, we all have believer's authority that's delegated. Any one of you, even if you haven't been walking with God, there's Satanists who end up getting haunted with the demonic spirit and cry out the name of Jesus, get delivered. Because that believer's authority, regardless of your walk, you can pull that out as a secret weapon. There's believer's authority, but there's this authority that comes through intimacy where the Lord grants special authority to those who walk in his intimate counsel. That's why in Isaiah 11, it's a spirit of counsel and power. 
When you walk in intimate, in the intimate counsel of God and you hear his whispers and his heart intentions, now he's trusted you with things that other people haven't been entrusted with. Now there's something that's like built on that believer's authority where it's counsel and power. You know, someone like William Branham, who was a healing revivalist back in the 50s, the Lord would show him trances. Like he had this trance of this kid in Ireland who got killed in a car wreck, literally his body broken and maimed at the side of the road. In a decade ahead of time, William Branham saw, uh, went into a trance and saw this little boy on the side of the road, saw what he would pray, and saw this boy being supernaturally put back together and raised from the dead. So later, 10 years later, he's driving down the road and realizes, wait, this is like deja vu. I've seen this before. I've seen that car. I've seen that boy. He stops. He gets out and prays. The boy gets raised from the dead. What happened? When you walk in the counsel of the father and you hear his heart intention and his whisper and you wait on him for revelation, there's power that comes with that proximity. So here it is. To him who overcomes, Revelation 3.21, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Oh, sit with the Lord on his throne? That's what Jesus, it's in the red letters. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. Imagine having the kind of authority where you're sitting with God on his throne making declarations. Now, that doesn't mean we presume a level of authority because there's a clue here. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, there's a key there. How did Jesus overcome and sit with the Father on his throne? He yielded his will completely. So the key to really having limitless authority is to yield your will completely to the will of the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's as you yield everything and all you want is his desire and his heart intention that now he smiles on you and he reveals exactly what he has planned. And usually when you hear what he has planned, it will sound a little bit shocking and a little bit crazy. Because what Paul said is about the plans of the father is no eye has seen no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what he has in, in store for us, but by his spirit has been revealed. The way Bobby Connor puts this is, if it sounds, if it's something that you can actually imagine or picture in, in your head, it's not big enough. Okay. So, as we're going to talk a little bit about the end times, and so we're going to get into the return of Christ. I want to talk about this just for a second. Um, we're going to uh, just reference Acts 1, and they're going to read something out of First uh, uh, Thessalonians 4. All right. <clears throat> 
in order to understand the return of Christ, you just got to understand the ascension because it's the same thing in reverse. So here's, I'll talk about it. Acts 1. There's 500 people. They're up on the Mount of Olives. There's a beautiful hill right outside Jerusalem. And Jesus is giving final instructions to not just the apostles, but over 500 believers. Now, it was customary in Bible times to just count the adult men. And that was like how they would kind of take the census or count population. But then you add to that wives and kids. So it's probably more than 500. It's probably more like 2,500. But they're up on this hill called the Mount of Olives. And after Jesus finishes final instructions, wait here in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. He starts to float up into the air. And then just like, I picture this like on, you know, with the rebooted Superman, where there's like a sonic boom as Superman goes, Jesus starts to just float up into the air and then he's hidden by a cloud and he vanishes. And these over 500 people, they're all just watching this happen, completely amazed because they just saw Jesus pass into another dimension called the eternal realms where the throne of God is. A place outside our dimension, outside time and space. And then two angels show up to talk to the people and make it really clear what they just saw. And these angels show up and they say, why are you all still looking at the sky? This Jesus is going to return in the same way he went up. How did he go up? In the air, visible to everybody, and then in a cloud of glory. Interdimensional travel goes through the portal. So when he comes back, guess how he's coming back? In a cloud of glory, in the air, in a way that is visible to everybody. Well, how is everyone on earth going to see him? What's he going to do? Circle around the earth a thousand times? Let me ask you this. How many suns are in the sky? One, right? We're not Star Wars. This isn't Tatooine. There's one sun in the sky. Jesus shines brighter than the sun. How's everyone going to see him? Is he going to circle around the globe a thousand times or what? We have one sun in 24 hours Everyone on earth can see it. Not a big deal. How much more when Jesus, who shines brighter than the sun, returns, every eye will be able to see him because that glory shining from him is going to be so bright. Now, I'd like to talk about the return of Christ before we talk about end times because this is kind of like the main event. In fact, if, we, if it's all we get to before it's time for Cracker Barrel, I'm okay with that. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. This is Paul teaching really clearly about the return of the Lord. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He went up alone, but he's coming back with every single person who uh, has died with their faith in Christ. And as soon as they come out of that interdimensional portal, they come into a material universe where they get their physical body back. So that's the resurrection. Is this making sense? Okay. Stop me if it's not. Okay. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede or come before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. Now, first creation, creation story. How did God make everything? He spoke. Here at the restoration and the recreation of everything from our bodies to the earth itself, it's again like a new creation because it's at his voice he remakes everything, starting with us. Okay. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Rise here means two things. Their physical bodies rise as glorified bodies, and this is kind of weird, but hear me out. We talked about last night. Mankind, we're a spirit who lives in the body because we're made out of two things, dust and breath. So the, the people who are returning with the Lord, right now they are very much alive in another dimension called the eternal realms. When Jesus comes back out of that dimension with them, as soon as they cross over, their bodies come up to meet them. Their spirit goes back into their body. And they now have a body that will never get sick, never get old, never get tired, never get hungry, that can do unique things like Jesus' resurrected body could do, like walk through walls and phase and teleport and stuff like that. And yet these are physical bodies. There's a reason people, and myself included, love things like Jedi Knights and Avengers and superheroes. There's something inside us that cries out for something more than this frail body that can get aged and injured and ill. There's something inside of us that wants to be more powerful than that. And it's... What we're actually after is the life and immortality that comes only through intimacy with the Father. We're after the restoration of all things. That's what deep inside our spirit is crying out for. After the, so, so first, those the Lord brought with them get their resurrection bodies back. Next, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, I'll just mention it. It says we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Wink at someone. 
That's how quick. So you look up, you're just like, just like they were looking up amazed when Jesus went into heaven, we're all going to be looking up amazed when he comes back, and you won't even notice, oh my goodness, I'm like 200 feet off the ground. And your body, you, you didn't even notice, your body started to tingle. You're starting to glow like an angel. You're starting to take on life and immortality. Your body can now do things it could not do before. Now, restoration of all things. This, I really felt, for this fellowship was something important the Lord wanted to highlight today. So I want to turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is probably one of my all-time favorite scriptures. All right, I'm going to raise this because I'm going to make a new list. With This list only has five things. So We'll start with verse 15 of Colossians 1. He's talking about Jesus. The supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So Jesus, number one, creator of all things. All right, next. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or all things exist, or all things consist. Hebrews tells us he holds all things together by the word of his power. At the quantum level, there's little particles. Atoms are made out of even smaller particles. You know what they're doing at the Hadron Collider over in Europe? They're trying to figure out what is the secret that holds the entire material universe together. They're trying to figure out not how things began necessarily, but how things even exist right now. There is an organization to every physical object at the quantum level that scientists can't figure out what's holding this chair together. Why I can't just put my hand through it. Here's what's holding the entire material universe together. The, the word of Jesus Christ. From his throne, he's holding everything together. He's all-powerful, that's omnipotent. He sees everything that's omniscient. He's eternal, so he's doing this from outside time and space, which is why who is holding the universe together when Jesus was born as a baby? Jesus was. It was Jesus in eternity holding it together while Jesus the baby was being born. Does that make sense? Because if you're outside of time, you're not limited. So that's, it, it was earlier Jesus holding together the universe while baby Jesus is born. Okay. Uh, let's keep reading. He is the head of the body, the church. Wait a minute. You're telling me 
this powerful person who created everything is holding everything together at the quantum level is our head. That means we have access to his thoughts. That means we can even have conversations with him that influence his plans for us. You have a one-on-one -on -one audience with the most powerful being, the supreme powerful being in the entire universe who holds the cosmos together. You have a private audience with him. Use it. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Say all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now that's a weird statement. Things in heaven, we'll circle back to that. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this is Redeemer of everything. Now, since we're human beings, we have a very human being-centered gospel. But you have to understand, the Father loves everything he made, from the deer munching on grass in the dewy morning to a distant nebula with, you know, like you see on those Hubble photographs. The Father deeply loves every single thing he made. Look at how Jesus talked about the Father. The Father knows if one sparrow falls to the ground. He cares about that little bird. We don't care about it. Bird hits the glass. Oh, that must have been a bird that hit the window, stupid bird. The Father cared about that bird. Oh, good. Some people care about the birds. Okay. That means you have the Father's heart for creation. Okay, once you were alienated from God, actually, we'll stop there, because I'm just going to make this key point here. He's going to judge all things, and then last, he's going to restore all things. Re oh, that's not how you spell that. Restorer. All right, we'll bracket this, of all things. All right, a lot of people have issues with God's judgment because they think it makes God sound like an angry, mean monster. Oh my goodness, God's judging? How mean, that sounds like an angry God. Let me put it this way. Suppose I went to Walmart and I left my sons at home my young sons. And while I was at Walmart, bad guys broke into my house. And so I come home from Walmart, there's windows broken, there's parts of my house burning and on fire because these bad guys were arsonists. My sons are tied up in the corner. What's the first thing I would do as a father, probably? Ari? Beat him up. up, yeah. I'm going to bring wrath on those bad guys. Not because I'm a person or the kind of person who's prone to anger and hatred, but it is my deep love for my sons. And also, yes, so, so my love, I love my house too because I invest, invested a lot of time fixing it up. So in order to comfort my children and put them back at peace, and also fix what's broken in my house and restore it, 
I first have to deal with the thieves, the arsonists, the bad guys who broke into my house. The reason it is absolutely necessary for the entire human race to go through the judgment before the full restoration of all things is released is because you can't fix up your house when you still have arsonists running around it. So we have to understand God's judgment of sin and darkness and wickedness and evil is out of his deep, deep love for his children. It's actually part of his restorative plan. When I prune my peach trees, it's not because I hate my peach trees, it's because I love them and I want them to be healthy and produce more peaches. When God prunes the human race at the judgment, it's so that he can rescue us from the evildoers who would ruin it all again. Now, the curse of sin and death impacted all of creation. And this is so important that God put a sign in creation to remind us of it. So go to Revelation chapter 3. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3. And this is verse 17. Genesis three seventeen to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the sign that not just mankind suffered from the curse of sin and death, but the entire created order suffered from it, the sign was thorns and thistles. Now, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll discover that planet Earth is the center of God's plan. That's why Jesus came and was born on planet Earth, and he died on planet Earth, and he ascended from planet Earth back into the eternal realms. And because it's the center of God's plan, it's the most important. However, if you read scripture carefully, it's not even just planet Earth that was affected by the curse of sin and death. It's the entire cosmos. It's the entire universe. We just read from Colossians 1. He made peace with his blood to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven or things in, on Earth. Revelation 21 tells us he is making a new heavens and a new earth. The old heavens and the old earth will pass away. Let me explain what heavens means here. In the Hebraic model, which is, was the worldview at the time Jesus walked the earth, there were three heavens. That's why Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven, right? Right? 
Very interesting. What was their worldview? If Paul is referencing the third heavens, here's their worldview. In the ancient Hebraic worldview, the first heaven is what they called Earth's atmosphere. That's first heaven. The place where you see clouds, and you see rainbows, and you see mist, and you see all of that. Uh, that's the first heaven. It's Earth's atmosphere. Second heaven is the rest of the universe. It's all of space. Second heaven in the Hebraic model, that's where the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the galaxies and the nebula, where all of that is. Third heaven is another dimension called the eternal realms that's not touched by sin or death because it's outside of our timeline. So when God says he's gonna make a new heavens plural, that means when he restores the earth, he's gonna redeem and perfect earth's atmosphere and the entire universe is gonna go to a new level of glory. Isaiah prophesied something really unusual. Isaiah said that the, uh, the moon would shine as bright as the sun and that the sun would shine seven times brighter. If that's regular light and UV radiation, we're all gonna get fried in like five minutes when he restores all things. But I don't believe that's what it's referring to. It's referring to the Shekinah glory of God, which is the bright light of his face. The reason the sun is gonna shine seven times brighter is because everything is gonna be clothed in the Shekinah glory and light of God just as it was before the curse of sin and death, but probably even better. Why didn't Adam and Eve know they were naked before the fall? Because they shone like the, with the Shekinah glory of God. The clothes that they wore weren't made out of cotton or linen or wool. They were made out of the very light of the Lord's glory himself. What we're called to wear all the time is the Shekinah glory. And in the age to come, we will. Now, we see the evidence of the curse of the fall in weather, in geological events, in seismic events, in earthquakes, in extreme weather patterns, in extinction level events that kill off species. In fact, creation, according to Romans 8, is groaning and crying out for the revealing of the children of God. In that same chapter, we have a definition of the children of God. Who are the children of God? Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Creation is experiencing an increasing crisis because of the curse of sin and death. And we're going to see more and more severe and extreme weather events. We're going to see more and more extinction level events for different species. We're going to see more and more seismic events. Jesus specifically warned about all of these kinds of things in Matthew 24. Talked about famines, talked about earthquakes, talked about pestilences. It's weird diseases and blights on the crops. We're going to see more of all of that. Those are all opportunities for us to operate as children of God. Here's where the gospel comes back in. The curse 
the, the, the sign that the curse was put on all of creation, all of the cosmos, all the created order, was thorns. As Jesus is on the cross, bleeding and dying to redeem mankind from sin, he is wearing a crown of thorns. Because he didn't just die to save, heal, and deliver, and restore us into our resurrection bodies. The crown of thorns he wore demonstrated that he purchased the right to restore the entire creation, the entire cosmos. It's not just animals and plants on planet Earth that die. Stars die and become black holes. That's the evidence. Between all those stars out there, there's the deep darkness. I saw a glimpse once of, and I'm not saying this is like, this is just what the Lord showed me. He, he showed me a picture of space after the restoration of all things. And instead of dark blackness in between the stars, it was like the perfect turquoise color. And yet the stars shone even brighter. It was like he took the darkness out of everything and increased the light, but you could see the stars even better. There's a beauty and a glory that's going to come on creation. Here it is in Revelation 21. This is worth reading. And this is John describing the restoration of all things. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So when Christ restores all things, there will be no more curse of sin and death. There will be no more curse of the fall. You will, no one is going to get bored in heaven because, you know, cartoons portray heaven. You're like floating on a cloud with a halo playing a harp and it looks really boring. No, we're going to actually spend eternity on this planet, but this planet upgraded with glory. So you can do whatever you do now, except without ever getting tired or hungry and without any fear of death. And so it is not going to be boring. Not only that, I don't believe we'll be limited to planet Earth. Just like there's something in the heart of man that wants to be like a Jedi Knight or an Avenger. Um, see, if the heavens declare the glory of God, and we're going to learn more about his glory for all eternity, then we might need to do some exploring. Maybe, maybe I'll colonize a planet. Planet Ficus. No, okay. Okay. <laughs> They're all going to have beards. <laughs> he who is seated on the throne said, now listen, this is in scripture. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. 
For these words are trustworthy and true. So he's making everything new. Now, when we appear before the Lord at the final judgment, he'll wipe tears from our eyes. So that is his searching eyes of love are going to go into every thought, every painful memory. He's going to strip out the trauma from our hearts and minds. We're going to be able to have memories, but memories without pain or trauma because our hearts and our minds will be fully redeemed. There won't be any more regret. There won't be any more temptation because those are the curse of the fall working in us. There won't be any more curse of the fall. That's why there will be no more darkness in the city or on the planet Earth. But by the way, the other reason there will be no darkness, if the sun is shining seven times brighter because of the Shekinah glory and the moon gets its light from reflecting the sun, that's why there's no more nighttime darkness when he restores all things. Imagine how the plants are going to grow when they're growing in the Shekinah glory. Okay, now, the secret is we can look forward to the sweet by and by where we encounter the Lord and we get transformed physically and internally. The secret is when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. To the extent you focus on the Lord now and believe the gospel now, your heart and mind can be transformed now. I'm a little crazy because I believe we don't have to age the way other people age. We don't have to get injured the way other people get injured. Angels can guard our feet. We don't have to experience illness the same way because we are not under the curse of the fall. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, see, you can apply the power of his blood to your sins when you repent and know that you are totally pardoned and forgiven and he'll forget it and never bring it up again. But that same gospel has the same regenerating power for your heart, for your mind, even for the aging process, even for creation itself. As our example... When a storm came up on the water, Jesus recognized there was something demonic about that storm. And he used his authority to rebuke it. We all have a delegated believer's authority. Jesus talked about it in John 14. He said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That means two things. Number one, his name Praying in his name is like if I give everyone in here a $100 Chick-fil-A gift card, okay? You get a gift card. You get a gift card, like Oprah. Now, I like that people are laughing at my jokes today. Thank you. Now, see, if you trust my integrity and my character, then you'll know that's a real gift card, and I really did load it up with 100 bucks. So you will go to Chick-fil-A and you will swipe and eat with confidence because you know I'm a man of my word. 
Now, here's the thing. When we need forgiveness, when we need healing, when we face chaos in creation and in the earth itself, Jesus has given us like a preloaded gift card in the power of his name. When you start to make declarations in Jesus' name over the weather, over the earth, you have authority to change reality, to change the way things are going to go. Just by declaring what the Lord is leading you to declare in Jesus' name. And you see, he's already paid for you rebuking the next hurricane and supernaturally protecting your home and property. He's already prayed, uh, paid for cancers in, in, in one of your family members to be totally cast out and removed permanently and never come back. He's already paid for you to not suffer from arthritis in a way all you can do is sit and watch The Price is Right all day. Does anyone still do that, like watch The Price is Right? That was the thing back in the day. So see, all, what he's calling us to do is rise up in faith. Now, let me end with this. I better be careful saying, let me end with. Now I got to do it because I got to be a man of my word. The end times is a two-sided coin. And I was going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and go really into this today, but I don't have time. So two-sided coin of the end times. No, trust me. It's like a two-hour message <laughs> to do that. But all right. I just want to help you with a simple illustration the Lord gave me. So on one side is shaking and judgment. You know, Jesus warned, we talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and what they represent. We could talk about Jesus' warnings in Matthew 24 about wars and deceptions and chaos happening in creation, famines and earthquakes and all of that. But what's really happening with this more negative side of the end times is, see, God is going to allow all of the destructive evidence of the curse of sin and death to fully manifest so that all humanity and all the universe can decide we never want to go that way again. So that's one side of the coin. The other side is greater glory and harvest. Now, I love the gifts of the Spirit. I love to teach and train people and, and uh, mentor people in things like prophecy and speaking in tongues and all of that discernment and all that stuff. There's a greater glory coming. And here's what the Scripture tells us. Hebrews 6, 5. Some may taste the powers of the age to come. Now, we just talked about the age to come. Everything's going to be covered in the Shekinah glory. You're going to have a body that can teleport and move at the speed of thought. We're going to be like otherworldly beings who operate like Jesus did after the resurrection in the age to come. But one of the things that's going to happen as we get into the end times 
is there's going to be a greater outpouring of the Lord's presence on planet Earth than there has ever been before in human history. And that's going to bring a greater harvest of souls on planet Earth than there has ever been before in human history. Now, in the Hebrew calendar, there's uh, Pentecost and there's tabernacles. Pentecost was a very light, gentle, early spring rain. And it would just soften the ground enough in the Israeli farms in ancient times, just enough where you could plant the seed and it would germinate. It was not a heavy rain. And for, for at least a couple weeks, probably a month, you don't see much happening in the fields. In the fall, in the Feast of Tabernacles, it was like monsoon season in Israel. Heavy downpours, like we had last night when I could barely drive <laughs> to get here because of the rain. And that led to greater harvest, bushels of fruit, tons of grain, because that greater outpouring. And so everything from the book of Acts until now is like that lighter Pentecost rain. In the last days, one thing we have to look forward to is the latter rain, which is the old, old English for later rain, later in the year, heavier rain. In other words, the glory of God that manifests in his people is going to be far greater in the end times than at any other time in human history. All right, Isaiah 60, you see both sides of the coin. Isaiah 60 tells us there will be deep darkness on the people. We see a lot of that now. People that are in darkness are going into a deeper darkness. That's one side of that chapter that's talking about the end times. Flip side is, but the light and the glory of God is going to rise on you. There's a greater glory. There's a greater light. It's interesting, it says light rises and glory rises. That's because you can walk in a greater glory of God as you understand more. That's why we need teaching as well. Because we need to understand what our inheritance is in order to claim it. Haggai too has both sides of the coin. The Lord says, I will shake all nations and fill my house with glory. The glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former. Now, we didn't get in the four horsemen tonight, or today, rather, which really, but it's in interesting. You have one chapter that talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which really just symbolize everything getting worse, everything we're worried about getting worse. In the very next chapter, it describes that in this time when everything is worse, there is a harvest that comes specifically out of this time that is from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, that is a greater harvest than has ever been seen on planet Earth. And it's such a great harvest, even the angels can't count how many are harvested. Now, these are connected. The Lord shakes us up to wake us up. And so, one of the things the Lord started to speak to me in COVID is he started to tell me, that the greatest challenges in history are going to create the greatest champions in history. If you, I mean, look at any great story, any great movie. The superhero origin 
it always comes out of crisis and trauma, right? And then they start to rise up and find something within them and discover who they are, and then they overcome and win the day. I'm telling you, there's a story arc to who you are called to be as a champion. The challenges in your life are designed to train you to be an overcomer and a champion for these last days. Now, I just want to say, there's a lighthouse reality to what you are called to become here. And with a lighthouse reality, there can be very turbulent seas. Seas in scripture always represent people. The worst turmoil to come does not involve the ocean or a hurricane or weather. The worst turmoil to come involves restlessness in the heart of mankind that leads to chaos on the streets. That's the real storm that's coming. It's a storm of lawlessness in a storm of hatred. In the midst of that storm, you are going to stand like a resolute lighthouse. And back in the day, you know, I toured the Hatteras Lighthouse. And back in the day, they had to climb, I think it's 290 steps or something to get to the top with 70 pounds of oil. And they'd have to do that like every 12 hours to walk up all those steps with 70 pounds of oil. See, the Lord is calling some of you to take on a weight of being the carriers of his oil to keep the lamp burning here. Is this making sense, Travis? All right. Lord, you talked about wise virgins. You talked about foolish virgins. Just close your eyes for a second. Lord, release your oil here today. Release fresh oil. Fresh anointing. Holy Spirit, fill this room right now. Fill this house right now. Fill each one right now with fresh oil and fresh fire. Thank you that there's a, like a burning restoration. I pray right now for um, illnesses, arthritis, burned out. Tumors, burned out right now in Jesus' name. Fibromyalgia, burned out like a restorative fire of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Burn it out. Trauma. Mental trauma that leads to anxiety and even like a fractured personality. Burn out the trauma right now in Jesus' name. Lord, there's a day that we're going to stand before you and you're going to burn out every aspect of the curse of the fall. But we ask that you walk into this room now. Walk in now. Breathe. <sighs> Breathe, breathe on us. All right, uh, 
Travis wanted me to share again about the skeleton I saw last night. It sounds creepy, but it's not. It's actually a good word. Um, scripture talks about a skeleton, skeletons in Ezekiel 37. But I saw Travis's skeleton, and what the Lord told me is that was structure coming together. You know, if you say a house has good bones, it means it's got a good structure. And so the Lord has smiled on this fellowship and the structure that's been created for what he wants to do. Now, in that chapter of Ezekiel 37, the next phase was flesh came on the bones. And he told me he's going to start to grow this fellowship. He's going to bring in more people. He's going to bring in more sons and daughters. We talked last night about the spirit of adoption. And that really is one of the main things. And we also talked about that house of prayer reality of becoming a habitation for his glory. That's another dynamic that's going to bring the people in. But the third thing is when the breath comes on those, uh, that army, that's the third thing. First, it's bones coming together, then it's the muscle, then it's the breath. He told me there is a move of power coming. And so I, I think that's an apostolic power. You know, when, when Paul would preach the message of Christ and him crucified, it put a demand on the anointing that made the signs and wonders happen in almost an inevitable way. And so there is a move of power coming um, where some of what we were talking about today with creation, I think there is something in on the destiny, the future of this fellowship where you're going to be speaking to creation, but also to the heart of man. So there's like horse whisperers, right? You have a wild bucking bronco, horse whisperer to come in and calm it. I think the the heart of man is going to become restless in this area, and you're going to be like a horse whisperer that through worship and intercession are going to be able to calm that storm. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm not, yeah. I, I want him to share that because I felt like that word yesterday for us as a church. First of all, what an amazing word this was today. So it was really awesome. Um, you know, the scripture, he mentioned this yesterday and today, just talking about Colossians, how we're to set our mind on things above. And then First John 3, it talks about as we are beholding and looking to his return, that we're purified through looking at that, through we're having our hope fixed on that thing. And there's something about having the picture painted so well like he did. He painted a picture with words that allowed you to see something that we're, that we're coming into that gives us uh, an amazing image to um, wrap our heart around which actually brings change and faith and hope and encouragement and brings us into, because we are what we behold. Whatever you look at, and that's why we have to learn how to look at Jesus. When, when the eyes of our heart begin to see Jesus the way he is, that's how we're transformed. And stuff like this paints such an amazing picture that we can see him better. A veil is removed, and then therefore we're able to see him, and we're being changed, changed into that very image. There is an instant change that's going to happen when we physically see him. But there's a change that's happening inside of us 
as Christ is being formed us as we behold him as he is and the veils are being removed from our mind. And I feel like that teaching was just so amazing in doing that, so thank you. But I do feel like the word, I just wanted to take a minute. I know that we've, you know, this is probably borderline about, you know, we're, we're, we're so-so. You know, it's not quite one. Don't worry. We're doing you a favor. You just don't realize it because, you know, you're not going to have to wait in line because everyone's going to be done eating. So you're going to be okay. Um, so, and, and anybody that comes here, except for the guest, if you come here, you know you better come having eaten breakfast or you're going to be fasting. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Um, but this word that he's talking about, the bones, he didn't know what I'm about to share. I haven't said this to him. Honestly, I, I don't know that I've told this totally to the church, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. But this is stuff that's been going on behind the scenes for years. But when I became pastor, we set our face to pray and to seek God's heart and to cry out for him to come and move in here, this building. We don't want churches number normal. We want encounters with God, and we want a church that he really is building. He's building it. We're just the players. He's the coach. Call the plays. But one of the things that, as we've been crying out for the Lord to come in power, one of the things that, and to reach this world, and to reach our city, um, one of the things that, the Lord kept speaking to us, uh, you know, Paul and Lonnie and myself and Josh, and as it has been this thing from the early days on that he was strengthening our core, that he was working on core, a nucleus of our church that he was dealing with, that he was working on. He was getting us ready so that we had a solid foundation so that when he adds to it, it doesn't cause destruction because we can't handle the weight of what's coming. And so recently, I would say within, I don't know, maybe you guys could help me within a month or two, I don't know how long ago, it was maybe a month and a half ago, while we were praying like we always try to do on Monday nights as a leadership team, I had a vision and it was a clear, you, you might have greater insight on this just because of your background with farming and, and stuff, but I saw this so clear. I'm, I'm praying, I'm not trying to see anything, but I see this tree in a, a pot. You know how when trees, um, I'm just learning, I'm, there's so much revelation in gardening, I'm having a blast this year doing this, but when you, when you plant a seed, a lot of times people like to start their seeds in a controlled environment so that it's, it's going to grow safely. It's going to grow protection. You're better, you have better chances of that seed really getting its roots deep and, and, and growing up healthy and it's surviving than if you plant it in the ground. It may do fine, but it may not do fine in the ground because you don't know about frost and early. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. But in this vision, you know, we're praying, I see this tree that's probably, I don't know, maybe this tall, still in a pot. And I knew it was us, our church. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, it's now time to be planted. And so when he's talking about the structure and the bones, we have been a small congregation. And I don't care as long as we're experiencing God. But there is something about reaching the world when you got something that's worth sharing about. You know what I mean? So we don't want numbers just for the sake of numbers to pat us on the back, but we do want numbers for the sake of reaching people for the gospel. You know what I mean? 
But this tree, I knew it was time to plant it. And I knew that when we plant it, there was going to be a spreading out because a tree, when it gets that big, those are expensive trees, by the way. I'm, I'm learning some stuff. When you, when you have a tree that's that mature in a pot, those cost a lot more than the trees that are young because they've already had a maturing process and it can be transplanted and it's, gonna, it's, just, it's further down the road. But at the same time, you can only grow so far in a pot before your pot actually becomes detrimental to your growth. Am, am I right about what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm you can get what? Root bound. Okay. Whatever that is, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> we want our root, but when you plant it, the roots start to spread out and they start to go down. And I feel like there really is a planting that the Lord's about to do on this place, and we're about to really spread out, and we're about to take off. So I, I just received that word. Is there anything that you feel from what I'm saying that you would want to add to that from the, from the just knowing about? Generally, the canopy on the tree, the spread, you know, how wide it can cover generally matches the root system. So if you're root bound, you have a limit on your reach of your canopy, but it, when it's planted, it's limitless, limitless growth. Hey, I'll throw this in. Matthew 13, Jesus tells two parables, and they're both about the kingdom of heaven growing in an organic, exponential way. And the first one is about yeast. So the way yeast multiplies, it grows in an organic, exponential way. And then the other one is the, tree, the mustard seed, and it grows into a tree big enough for all the birds of the air to... So that's organic, exponential growth. Here's what's different. With the religious model, you can only add. It never becomes exponential, so that you're always limited in your growth. But the way the kingdom works when you tap into the spirit, it's exponential. So it's like out of control, dunamis growth. Amen.